Money Sense is brought to you by the Ellen Becker Investment Group, three-time recipient of the Better Business Bureau's Torch Award for Business Ethics and Integrity. The Ellen Becker Investment Group is the only Wisconsin investment company to receive this prestigious award more than once by providing exceptional planning and extraordinary service each and every day. Go to ellenbecker.com. Listen to Money Sense Saturdays at 2 p.m. and Sundays at noon. Hello, welcome to Money Sense. I'm Jamie Williams, Wealth Advisor for the Ellen Becker Investment Group. Ellen Becker Investment Group is located in Pewaukee, just east of 164 and Capitol Drive in the Town Bank Building, also in the Village of Whitefish Bay in the Equitable Bank Building, across from Winkies. We also serve clients in Bonita Springs, Florida. Visit ellenbecker.com for more details. Our very special guest today is Dick Schiller. Dick comes to us from Pavlik Investment Advisors, a local colleague and firm that has a special presence with us in terms of the bond manager that we use inside of our Ellen Becker portfolios. Dick is also a chartered financial analyst and CPA, and his offices are in Delafield, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show today, Dick. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. So, you know, we wanted to have you on the show. Uh, you've been on the show along with your colleague, Terry Pavlik, many times and been friends of Ellen Becker for several years now. And, you know, we thought it would be very relevant and timely to get you in to talk a little bit about uh, the current state of the bond market. We'll also touch on, you know, other items relative to where things sit today relative to a year ago. And uh, as most of our listeners know and our clients alike, we like to educate our clients and share information that's relevant and also give them a sense of understanding of where things are headed. So again, thank you for joining us today. So the last time we had you on the show uh, was, you know, probably before a lot of big things have happened within the markets and the economy. Uh, You know, there's just some things that we came off of 2022 that leave us with ideas of where we're headed. Obviously, last week there was some big news that had come out on some banking-related sector, specifically um, Silicon Valley Bank. I do want to touch on that later today, uh, but also kind of the current state of the interest rate market where we're at. So with that, you know, if you don't mind, I'd like to just maybe start with recapping where we've been over the last 12 months and, you know, get a sense of, you know, the current state of the market. Definitely, yeah. So... I think 2022 was was not only a very interesting time period for stocks, but uh, for the the sleep well at night portion of your portfolio bonds. Uh, the the for the year bonds, the aggregate bond index was down 17.4 percent. That doesn't seem synonymous with with swan sleep sleep well at night, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's some mismatch there. So so why was that? And, and the reason why. Bond, you know, especially the, the AGG, the bond ETFs or bond mutual funds. The, the reason why they were down 17% is because interest rates continued to rise throughout the year. So, so bond prices and interest rates have an inverse correlation. When one goes up, the other goes down. And when one goes down, the other goes up. So we had an incredible amount of pressure from the short end of the yield curve from the Federal Reserve. And they control the federal fund rate. So that's the overnight lending program that banks can loan mm-hmm. money to and from the Fed, to and from other banks. As there's pressure, upward pressure on that side of the curve, the longer ended dates of the curve also face pressure to move higher. Um, so 
you know, putting the yield curve inversion aside for a second, we saw rates pressure across the board throughout 20, uh, throughout uh, 2022. So part of that also, the, the longer your time period to maturity, the more interest rate risk you hold. So if you have a bond, for instance, that we bought at the beginning of 21 that had 25 years to maturity, we might've been able to get 2% yield, 2.5% mm-hmm. yield, and 25 years to maturity, we're buying that bond, holding it for 25 years at 2.5%. The reason why we, we don't do that, we don't go up 25 years, is because that bond that's 25 years out to maturity has a, a ton of interest rate risk. In this environment, that bond is probably trading in the in the 60s, where you know very very far from par, because the market rate today for something 25 years out is closer to six seven percent. Mm-hmm. Um, where we're seeing across the yield curve, we we like to stick in the just the first 10 years uh, of the maturity ladder just to stay relatively short. So a typical bond portfolio is uh, 10 years out, 10 percent coming due in each year. So. You have a bond 10% of your portfolio coming due to 23, 24, 25. And rates across that portfolio today are, are we can get six months and still make 5%. We can go out 12 months to make 5.5%. And uh, really, uh, 10 years out is 6.5%. So there's that window there, right? 5 to 6.5%. That's pretty flat curve, not a ton of steepness. But the, the big thing is, and compared it to the beginning of 2022, is all those rates are higher, right? All, all the mm-hmm. rates are higher. So when you're holding to maturity, we're able to, to take, every year we're going to have 10% of the portfolio mature. So we're able to take those maturities and buy, you know, either fill out a spot missing in the current ladder, add to an existing position that might be light, or add to the next year of the maturity uh, table. So, you know, 2032, 2033. Um, so that's been really, really nice in our position. It's been able to lock in something 2032 for 6.5%. Um, the other nice thing that has worked well, we, we don't have as big of an egg on our face, right? Because our, our bond portfolios weren't down 17.5% last year. And the big reason why that is, is because if you think I'm going to have 10% maturing every year for the next 10 years, my average maturity across the portfolio is probably around four to four and a half years. So I have something coming due in six months, I have something coming due in 10 years, and, and 10% throughout that ladder. You know, the average bond uh, maturity or duration across most bond mutual funds is, is closer to eight, nine, 10 years. So they might have that bond out 25 years in my previous example. They, sure. You know, they, they have a much wider, longer um, duration span. Um, and our view is that we, we just want to keep interest rate risk mitigated. Um, we, we don't want to be looking out and saying, you know, it, it's hard to say, hold this to maturity, it's right. 25 years. It's hard to tell a client, you're not going to touch this for 25 years. Right? People can see 10 years out, one year out, two year out. And, and we've made a lot of custom portfolios. People who say, yeah. I can only see three years out. Um, you know, they might not have... I might be in my 80s or something. Yeah, and, and, and quite frankly, I mean, that's part of where the planning comes in and being more customized, you know. Uh, one thing that I would just like to add or just interject here is that, you know, our structure, what, how we do things and we manage the fixed income side of the portfolio is probably a little bit more unique because we do have the individual bond ladders. Uh, but I did want to mention, you know, we are able to kind of match the duration or the need or the outcome of the cash flow, and that is uh, – that that's 
something that is important for a lot of our people, especially as they're in their income distribution phase, or you know, maybe it relates to required our minimum distributions or whatever the case may be. Uh, but just a couple thoughts on that, because we entered a bear market last year in June. Um, we and, and the S&P, the major indices, you know, when it comes to where bonds finished last year, as you mentioned, the ag was down very significantly. When was the last time something like that happened? I mean, that's that's not, not a common thing, right? Never. The down 17% number was the worst year for bonds and going back 100 years, and I don't really trust the data that goes back further than that. Right. Yeah, sure. So I, I think it's safe to say ever. And, and the reason why that is is because interest rates have spiked very difficult, very, very steeply. Sorry, I keep it. I'll re-edit that. But interest rates have risen very aggressively in a very short amount of time. Uh, in fact, this is the fastest interest rate hiking cycle that the Federal Reserve has ever embarked on. We've, we've really gone from zero uh, to now a range of four and a half to four seven five, and there's it's the it's a fifty fifty shot. Yeah. We get another twenty five basis point through zero next week, so it's right. ever changing and fluid situation. Uh, granted, those numbers are lower percentages than what they were before the SVB and, and banking issues uh, occurred, but we'll talk about that later. But um, yeah, that it, it's never happened. So it, it it really has been not only a, a bear market for stocks, but a, a bear market for bonds, especially mm-hmm. if you have long duration bonds. Yeah, for sure. So here today we have a very special guest, Dick Schiller, uh, chartered financial analyst with Pavlik Investment Advisors, also a partner to Ellen Becker Investment Group in terms of managing our individual bond portfolios. And today we're talking about the interest rate environment, we're talking about bond investing, and some of the things that come along with where we've been over the last, uh, say, 12 to 18 months. So with that, uh, we are going to take a break here in a minute, but a couple additional thoughts on, you know, kind of where the Fed is right now in terms of the rate hike cycle. You mentioned it's the fastest that we've seen in a long time. Um, You know, it's going to tie into our next segment, I think, is where the reason behind that, you know, why is the Fed doing what they're doing and how will it impact us from a standpoint of our portfolios in the future. So with that being the case, uh, we're going to take a, a brief break and thank you for listening to Money Sense. Welcome back to Money Sense. This is Jamie Williams, Wealth Advisor with Ellen Becker Investment Group, and today I'm joined by Dick Schiller with Pavlik Investment Advisors, one of my colleagues, also a wealth advisor. Uh, Dick and his uh, partner, Terry Pavlik, have been working with Ellen Becker for a number of years now, helping us with constructing our individually managed bond portfolios. Dick is a chartered financial analyst and brings a wealth of knowledge to this space in terms of an economic update and just uh, getting a sense of where things are at from an overarching um, standpoint. So with that, thanks again, Dick, for joining us today. Uh, Before the break, uh, we were talking a little bit about the interest rate hiking cycle that the Fed has been on. And I think it's been more or less unprecedented to see the Fed go from zero to say four and a half, four point seven five 4.75 in the current rate environment. Um, So I'd like to spend a little bit of time about talking about what that really means to bond investing in general, some of the pressure that we've seen in terms of yields, uh, you know, 
the actual bond pricing, and then if we can get a sense of where we're heading from here. Yeah, great, great questions. And you know, it's amazing how fluid this situation was. If we were to rewind back to a week ago at this time, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, First Republic, some of these these topical banks that are in the news now, the regional banks. That people were debating was the terminal rate, or, or in other words, where the Fed is going. Are they going to go to five and a half or, or even six percent? Uh, a, a lot of really prominent investors had had a six number in front of it, which, which like you said, is, is unprecedented, unprecedented, and really unheard of. Um, but now, with what we've seen in the last week, with Silicon Valley Bank really going down in about 24 hours. Uh, that those rate expectations have really declined. So, so the expectations now are, we, we were predicting a 50% or 50 basis point rate increase next week at the Fed meeting. Now it's a 50-50 toss up between zero, staying flat, literally pausing right now where they're at, uh, or raising an additional 25 basis points. Uh, the 50 basis point increase the market at least has has taken that off the table as, as an assumption of that's where they're going because of, of what has transpired really in in the last 72 hours of, of business time mm-hmm. um so it, it's an incredibly fluid situation it's very hard to predict where exactly it is going um but but we can say that i think because of what we've seen right that the, there's this old adage that the fed will continue to raise until something breaks and we just saw something break, and we saw it break mm-hmm. very, very quickly. Uh, is it a systemically important bank as an SVB? Probably not. It was the 16th largest bank by assets. But I think the just the, the quickness of, of how this happened uh, was a big wake-up call. And it, it definitely needs to raise some alarm bells at the Fed that, that what they're doing uh, does put a lot of pressure on banks. And, and why that is is, for instance, Let's say you and I, we, we got our mortgage at, at 3%. We're feeling great, right? We're, we're in a really yep. good spot. So the bank has that on their books at 3%. If they're continuing to hold that mortgage uh, throughout your payments, they're, they're making money, right? They're making 3%. Uh, they're not making, compared to what market rates are, a ton of money on that mortgage, but they're still making money. Mm-hmm. If now, for instance, they have deposits start to flow out slowly, steadily over time, and then all of a sudden there's a, a spike in deposits, and I think we'll we'll talk about that in the next section. But the the bank needs to raise capital. Either they need to bring in more deposits, or they need to sell assets to, to fall within capital requirement ratios. The problem with that mortgage that we have at three percent that we were fortunate enough to lock into. If the bank wants to go out and sell that, they might be selling that just like a bond, sure. 60 cents on the dollar. Uh, and that's a problem. That's when all of a sudden we start having banks overnight need to recognize a major loss or banks need to go to the equity markets and say, we need to issue equity. And will they? Will buyers come in? Will, will people come in and say, yeah, sure, I'll either loan you money or I'll, I'll buy your common stock here. Uh, and what happened with SVB was was no. So, you know, they, yep. they turned it around. And that's that's what was really interesting about that. But I, I think, you know, because of what happened in that situation, getting back to just interest rate expectations is, you know, I don't feel like we're going much past where we are now. I, I think, you know, we'll probably get another 25 basis point rate increase at the next meeting, really just because the Fed was signaling because January's inflation report came in so hot, they were mm-hmm. signaling going 50. So 
there's a big credibility issue that's this this constant battle not envious of their job at all but on the one hand they need to be data dependent but on the other hand they also need to say and do what they're gonna say they're gonna do so it's this, it's this battle but um you know if i were in their shoes uh I, and i hope they get this message i hope they do this but i hope they say you know something something broke so mm-hmm. we need to hit the pause and analyze just what it is we're doing and let's see how this all settles out because there is a lag between monetary policy uh, and its impacts on the economy. And they've, they've admitted that. Uh, now I think they just need to put it into action. So, you know, I, I think we might go another 25 next week, but I, I would guess that they pause after that. And that, that still is a very, very high level, 475 to 5% at the short end of the yield curve. And even if they pause, what that means is the rest of the yield curve will still be elevated. So mm-hmm. I still expect, you know, bonds that we're purchasing in the EIG portfolios to be above five. It has yep. to be above the shortest end of the yield curve, uh, and, and you know, further out down down the uh, down the yield curve is, is probably closer to six. Absolutely, and we know the Fed has really two goals: you know, to keep unemployment low and to keep inflation low and tame as well. So. That we'll talk about coming up in our next segment a little bit more around the inflationary environment that we've seen, the characteristics of inflation, how that works. Um, But before we get into a lot of that, I did want to kind of touch on some of the concepts of building, you know, a portfolio, right? Our clients have a range of different things that they're trying to accomplish, whether they're in wealth accumulation or they're, you know, in retirement. And... You know, there was a lot of talk last year. There's no alternative to high-quality dividend-paying stocks, the death of 60-40, you know, things of that nature. Um, do you have any thoughts on on that in general, just kind of coming off of where we've seen things from last year, ending the S&P 500 at down 19 after being down mid-25, 20 26% at the point in September? Um, do you have any any thoughts around bond investing and how that still is going to protect our clients even in a in a downward pressure environment? Yeah, definitely. It's a, a great point. When it's so funny when everyone says that it's the death of something, that's usually a, a great contrarian indicator, right? I, I remember I think it was a Forbes uh, magazine that on the cover it said inflation. Where is it? You know, we printed so much money and from the CARES Act and the stimulus in response to COVID, but inflation isn't here. And I, that probably marked the bottom mm-hmm. of inflation. Yep. Uh, so it and people have been calling the death of sixty forty for a long time now, but that really has also marked the bottom of sixty forty because you rewind two years ago, and the bond strategy where you could buy bonds in the short term, six month paper for 0.5%. Now that's not making anyone wealthy. Inflation wasn't where it is now, but really the the purpose, the, the main objective of the bond portfolio was just to add some overall portfolio stability because people just didn't feel comfortable taking a 100% stock uh, portfolio. So on the other hand though, earning 0.5% in six months, that's no one's getting excited about that, right? We're, we're barely keeping up with inflation you know, back uh, two years ago numbers. So now fast forward to today, and we can say, okay, we can do a, our typical 10-year ladder with an average yield to maturity of around four and a half years. And the, the rates fluctuate every day, just like stocks, but the general window of the last three to six months has been that 
overall yield to maturity is five and a half to six percent. So five and a half to six percent, that's that's now pretty good and if not competitive uh, with stock returns. Stock returns should still be in you know, nine to eleven percent when you include dividends. So there is that bucket. It's it's a higher yield, a higher expected yield asset. But at the same time, also, at least at least from my shoes, and you probably experience this too with, with some of the clients you're working with, people are really nervous. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I try pushing people that say, hey, the expected returns in stocks is is nine to eleven percent, and the bond portfolio is five to six percent. And if you know. If, if you had zero emotional cognitive dissonance, you would say, well, give me the highest yielding asset. Right? But that doesn't work. That's that's not reality because you know we, we want bonds to complement the stock side of our portfolio. And now it's not a matter of, well, I'm just buying bonds to lower the portfolio volatility. I'm buying bonds to earn 5%, 5% per year. Uh, that's pretty powerful. And you know, the other really interesting thing is, is some clients, if if you're nest, if they're in retirement, for instance, and if your nest egg is large enough, you start throwing around four or five percent numbers, and they might say, you know, I can actually live off a distribution of five or six percent, and that distribution, uh, you know, I won't have to eat right. my principal. Absolutely, I have to my principal will be very limited, and you know, at the end of the day, we are taking less risk than stock investors, so that's attractive to to a lot of our clients. Yeah, and I'll say this uh, just to add, when I think about bonds, you know, it's it's kind of like the ballast of the ship that keeps the ship right, even in turbulencies. Or you know, I've often described bonds as like bookends, right? They're they're on your portfolio. They're kind of helping keep everything upright. So those are just a couple of thoughts and. You know, today we're with Dick Schiller from Pavlik Investment Advisors, uh, very close uh, strategist to EIG as Dick manages our individual bond laddering strategies for our clients. And today we're having this show to kind of educate our you know, listeners and our clients alike on some of the things that are relevant within the current environment. So with that, we'll be right back after this br- brief break. Thank you. Welcome back to Money Sense. This is Jamie Williams, Wealth Advisor with Ellen Becker Investment Group. And today we're joined by Dick Schiller from Pavlik Investment Advisors. Before the break, we were talking about a number of things relative to, you know, bonds, pricing, interest rates, you know, inflation, all the things that you hear about in the headlines that people are, you know, kind of looking at. Um, We also started to talk a little bit about the events of what transpired within the regional banking sector, specifically Silicon Valley Bank. Um, And so with that being the case, we want to talk about that in this segment, Dick, along with some ideas around where things are headed in terms of credit quality. You know, obviously that's part of the financial sector, one of the sectors that many of our clients have some exposure in, maybe limited direct exposure to Silicon Valley Bank. But Generally, that's going to be something that that entire sector is going to feel some pressure on. So why don't we start with you walking us through with kind of what happened uh, last week? Yes, certainly. So if people haven't heard of Silicon Valley Bank before, they they probably have heard of it now. Uh, It's been just fascinating to uh, to watch. And uh, one of of the most interesting things that my takeaway from it was actually in a, a Wall Street Journal 
article, I think it might have been an opinion piece actually, but it, it told the story of a venture capitalist that was in uh, Big Sky, Montana, going on a ski trip. And he was actually on a shuttle. And he noticed that everyone on that shuttle was looking at their phones and uh, just, uh, he's like, well, they're not all texting. Why is it so quiet on this on this shuttle? What's, mm. what's going on? And he asked the guy next to him, he said, well, you know, we hear there are issues at Silicon Valley Bank. So mm-hmm. I'm on my phone trying to, to move our money out. And he's like, oh, shoot. Well, if you're doing that, if it looks like everyone on the shuttle is doing that as well. I better move my money out too. And I think you just see how it starts off with really Silicon Valley Bank, if you were paying close attention over the last three, four quarters, they were slowly draining deposits. And I think part of that is really specific to Silicon Valley Bank. Um, they, they, were, they would pride themselves on funding mostly unprofitable startups. Mm-hmm. And 50%, I think they said 50% of the startup industry they bank. That was their target audience. Um, unfortunately, a lot of that credit quality is is not as strong and, and suffers in a rising rate environment, right? Cash flows matter, profits matter right now. And it, especially that from that story of everyone on the shuttle, when people have access to their bank on their phone, it, it makes it almost scary how quickly we can move money to or from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how easy it is for panic to, to really ensue. And, and part of this was, you know, mismanagement of risk on SVB's side. You know, at, at the end of the day, their deposits were falling because the companies that they had lent money to were, were using cash um, and, and weren't replenishing that cash as quickly. Uh, but the other piece of this was we've never seen a credit rating at a3 on Moody's, SVB, on Friday, A3, and on Monday, BC. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have a big window or any window to be able to make a decision of, you know, what should we do with with a bond? What should we do with a common stock? Uh, it, it really happened in a 24-hour period. And I, I blame a lot of that on the fact that we can move money so easily on our cell phones. Uh, it, it's... That you know that didn't uh, that didn't happen, you know, nine, five, ten, twenty years ago. And I, I, I was reading some history of of bank runs way back when. And uh, John Pierpont Morgan, the old founder of J.P. Morgan Chase, now mm-hmm. he would tell his tellers if there's a bank run, count the money on the desks more slowly. There is a bank run. Absolutely, you have to stand in line, go into the bank. I mean, that sounds like voting, right? It's like you, know, you go into the you, you wait in line for an hour and you, you hope there's money there. Now people are on a shuttle skiing in in Big Sky and they've moved hundreds of millions of dollars out of the bank. Yeah. In fact, in, in one day, the, this bank by assets was just over 200 billion, 16th largest bank in the country. In one day, 42 billion was pulled from it. Wow. And the upper 90s percent of that there were some people in lines we did see that but the sure. upper 90 percent was done electronically yeah digital dollars digital not dollars. not physical right. obviously currency in this in this world it's a very efficient market briefcases of uh, yep. cash around right this is all digital mm-hmm. yep and i think it really just goes to show the fragility um 
of the banking system, the, the, the good and the bad of technology. And you know, this, this can be said of, of watching stock prices on your phone, right? The, the Robin Hood movement. Um, the good and the bad is that money has just gotten so much faster. Um, and, and I think it, it really showed a, a major risk in the banking system. You know, coming from banking, several years I worked, managed banks, was in commercial lending, you know, before I changed uh, my career path uh, 15 plus years ago to become a wealth advisor. And I can tell you, you know, different banks have different focuses or areas that they, you know, obviously they, they cater to, their client bases are developed differently. Yeah, I think we're talking about a very specific type of bank here that did a lot of lending, venture capital firms, and credit quality. You know, that's, that's a big thing for banks because they are required to hold aside reserves that are there in case there are losses or anything that might come up. And I can't imagine with the type of balance sheet that they would have, you know, in terms of the types of loans and clientele. Uh, I also read that a vast majority of their clients did, were well above the FDIC limits of 250000 so, you know, I know that there were some actions that were, you know, were there to make people relieved in the sense of trying to stop the, the hype. But, you know, I think that really does go down the path of credit quality, um, efficient markets. I mean, we're, we're kind of witnessing that happen here today. So generally speaking, do you have a take on the banking environment in terms of its solvency, overarching credit quality. I know post-financial crisis here, banks look at making uh, loans and looking at credit differently. And I would be curious to get your take on that along with that, how that factors into bond ratings. Yeah, definitely. As you know, we, we keep very close watch uh, of credit ratings. Whenever there's a credit rating on any bond that we own, we get an email alert. And it's a, it's a wake-up call to, hey, dig in. Uh, see what's going on here. Whenever we're buying bonds, we want to be in the triple B, triple B plus, A minus even. Um, and the majority of the bonds that we hold are admittedly a triple B, triple B plus. Uh, so once it gets downgraded below triple B minus, so we have two or three rungs on average before we get downgraded below investment grade, um, we feel like that's enough safety. And for Silicon Valley Bank, we went from A3 to C. We dropped seven notches uh, in a weekend, right? And and that uh, I think is definitely a wake up call. Um, where that weekend, Terry and I we downloaded every single holding within our EIG bond portfolio. We said, what exposure do we have to regional banks? Um, luckily, none of them were on the the Moody's list of. You know, they're doing their homework, working all weekend too. I mean, sure. And uh, you know they put out six banks that, that they're on the, uh, their watch list, and you know I think it goes back to the idea that if banking is so electronic and so mobile now, um, we have to be very very comfortable that the deposit base isn't going to flee. I mean, one mm -hmm. of it is their are their loans on their books good, uh, and then secondly, really I, I don't think it, that was really the sub problem. The, the main problem was just the panic and how easily accessible it's for people to pull money out. Um, and the other really interesting thing of this piece is this all happening. People are, are asked, well, if you were a, you had money at SVB, where where are you putting your money? And there were names that 
constantly came up. I've heard JP Morgan, the most common. I've heard B of A, City, and Wells. Those are all one thing in common, right? All one thing in common. The four largest banks in the U.S. Um, yep. If you rewind back to even the GFC and the regulation like Dodd-Frank that came out of that, the goal was to, it was too big to fail. We need to get rid of too big to fail. We need to give more power to the little guys, the, the regional banks. And I, you know, I've heard that, you know, there's a two-tiered system of regulation, the regulation of the too big to fail banks, the big four, and then all other banks. Yep. Right. And, and so we've seen how problems can emerge there. I think ultimately uh, the, the big banks will get stronger from this and, and, you know, they're going to have an influx of deposits from some of the weaker uh, credit uh, forms. So, you know, we're, yeah. we're watching it very closely. I think it's a, a great example of, you know, we can rely on the, the credit ratings at Moody's, at S&P. It's a very good screening tool, but especially with regional banks, um, I can tell you this, yep. we're not buying anymore. We're not adding to exposure. We, we, we do have a little bit of exposure. It's, it's very low on a percentage basis to some select yep. regional banks, but we're not adding to those positions because we've seen what can happen within 24 hours. Yeah, it will be interesting to see how this all does unfold over time. I know we're kind of just in it right now with uh, with this the banking sector feeling the pressure. But I can say this from my personal experience of how important the regional and community bank uh, presence is. You know, these are the people that help small business make loans. They're not all in the same, you know, type of business of, of making high-risk loans. Exactly. They partner up with SBA. You know, they're, they're looking at, you know, cash flow and, and, and collateral items that really, really shore up and strengthen their balance sheet and credit quality. So, you know, um, those are some very important points that I would just want to bring to light. And they're essential to our yep. system. They really are. So. We can't have four big banks. Yeah. Uh, that's more of a European model, and I think, you know, we need to give credit where credit is due um, and, and recognize some of just the fragility of how quickly deposits can move. Yep, and so with that, uh, we're going to take a brief break here. We are with Dick Schiller with Pavlik Investment Advisors. Dick is a fixed income specialist, chartered financial analyst, and we've been talking about the bond environment, the regional bank, you know, kind of headlines that we're seeing right now. And uh, when we get back from the, the break, we're going to talk a little bit more about portfolio considerations, things that people should be thinking about, especially as it relates to inflation. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Money Sense. This is Jamie Williams, Wealth Advisor with Ellen Becker Investment Group. Today we're meeting with Dick Schiller, Chartered Financial Analyst and Wealth Advisor with Pavlik Investment Advisors in Delafield, Wisconsin. Before the break, we were talking about a number of things relating to uh, you know, the, the regional bank sector, Silicon Valley Bank in particular, bonds, bond ratings, kind of where we've been over the past 18 months or so uh, since we came off of you know, what is touted as one of the longest bull market runs in history. Um, as we all know and witnessed, last year was a challenging environment for fixed income investing. And uh, before the break, we were, you know, talking, uh, just touching on some of the factors surrounding credit quality. I know a lot of the things that people see in terms of headlines, you know, inflation has been something that we've definitely heard a lot about over the last year. 
but also um, the fears of a recession. So with that being the case, I want to touch on that, and then maybe we can kind of finish up with talking a little bit around what it means for our clients, how they should plan for it in terms of planning in their portfolios. So uh, any initial thoughts on the inflation discussion in terms of where we are, Dick, and just certainly welcome that. Yeah, totally. So, you know, rewind two years ago and we were escaping a frozen economy from from COVID, you know, the the lockdowns that we saw across the country. And then we flooded the money with system, using cheap money, uh, not only from the Fed, but also from things like the CARES Act, trillions of dollars. And the inflation that we had never seen since the great financial crisis, I remember in, like from post-financial crisis, 2010 to 2018, we were, we were trying to stoke inflation. We were so frustrated with why it couldn't get to 2% because we were below 2% so consistently. Uh, and that was from a, a slower economic growth period. Uh, but now now it's here and it, it is here to stay. I think the old transient word uh, is, is, a, is a really uh, poor choice of words uh, from, from way back uh, when. And uh, I think Jay Powell admitted that uh, persistent right. is, is the correct word. Um, there were definitely pieces at the time looking back into like supply chains that seemed to be that, you know, in the process of getting fixed. Uh, but it, that, that supply chain story was really just part of it. I, I think the biggest part of it was how much money has flooded the system. It, it was the demand side of the equation much more so than the supply side of the equation. So we peaked uh, at the at the roughly the September of last year around 9% on, on the CPI reading. Uh, headline number and we the last three have been six five six four six zero uh, monthly CPI readings so you know it was it was it felt pretty good when and we this correlated to the the rise in the stock market from October through uh, February first felt pretty good going from nine to six five we were going pretty quickly you know you were like boy if we're taking off zero point five percent per month. Mm-hmm. Gosh, we might get to two or three percent by the end of the year. Uh, you, you look at the last three months, though six five, six four, six zero, and you notice a, a, a change in the second derivative. The, the slope uh, has has flattened out, and now you're thinking, boy, how do we how do we get back down to two or not going zero point five percent down anymore? Um, I think what we did witness with the banking system, I think psychologically it will be a very deflationary environment. So I think we will have an acceleration of inflation uh, down. Do we get to 3% by the end of the year? Maybe, maybe not, I I guess maybe three and a half. So I think it Mm -hmm. will come down and start re-accelerating down quicker because of the shock that uh, there's been in in the the regional banking system right now. But the Fed is is very set on 2%. And to me, that feels far away, uh, probably 12 months away. Sure. Um, so, and then tying that into, you know, recession, uh, there's, uh, I think everyone likes to describe it in some way, soft landing, hard landing, no landing. Yep. Um, and these, these tend to come up, uh, every three, four months and, uh, d- different acronyms to describe the environment we're in. Uh, I, I'm in the camp and I'm not sure if which bucket this falls in soft landing, hard landing or no landing, but, uh, I'm more in the camp that we're going to go through periods of rolling recessions in different industries. Uh, last year, the only subsector that was up on the stock portfolio was energy companies. The, the subsector was up 60%. Uh, 
and technology companies uh, were down 25 percent so you know there, there wasn't a recession for energy companies last year uh, I've, I've never seen energy companies make so much money this right. year in this granted short window but uh, starting off year to date it's been the exact opposite where, where energy companies uh, the, I, I wouldn't say we're, we're seeing too much pressure on profits yet but the concern on on uh, the, just the global macro environment puts pressure on the price of oil, puts pressure on uh, energy companies. They've been the worst performing sector year to date and technology has been the, the best performing sector. So I think this is going to be a period where you know, we've, we've already, re remember stocks peaked at, at the beginning of, of 2022. And so we are 15 months into this. 2008 you know, was, a, was a very bad recession. I, I think there's some thought process that every recession needs to be like 2008, and that's not necessarily the case, but 2008 right. was, was really nasty, the you know, worst one since the Great Depression. And that was, from a stock perspective, uh, peak to trough time period uh, of 18 months. And we're 15 months right now. So whether or not we wanna you know, call it a recession, I'm, I'm not sure I would change my asset allocation today because you know, if, if you think we're in a recession, I, I agree, but I think we're in it. And I think stocks have priced that in. Yeah. You know, we, we are down 20%. Bonds took a, a beating last year. Uh, you know, I, and it, it's just, it's, that's this is the toughest part about the markets. And quite frankly, our jobs is helping coach people through this one. When you feel the absolute worst and usually close to the bottom, uh, and maybe people don't feel the worst they've ever felt, but um, Telling you, my clients aren't, aren't necessarily feeling that comfortable and rosy in this market environment. No, and I can agree, you know, to some extent on that, just because, you know, it, whether you're working with someone who's an experienced investor, they've been in it for a while, they may have experienced 08. If not, maybe this is a newer environment for them. But it always takes us back to the idea of planning uncertainty. If there's question, should always direct us back to what we've done in terms of the planning, right? Because even in a down market, we don't want clients to feel like they can't do the things that they've been planning for, whether it's retirement or travel or paying for, you know, one of one of your children's weddings or whatever it might be. Um, and so with that being the case, I think that's a very relevant uh, point because the way that we structure our bond portfolios for not all, not all. I mean, we do hold you know active and passive, different types of fixed income instruments in our portfolios for rebalancing and other other things. But back to the strategy that we we work with with you, it's really proven to work well in a down environment because we have some predictability around what we're going to get. Right. So, have you uh, had any? I guess you know things that have kind of come to light for you through this last market cycle that maybe you learned or weren't necessarily expecting to take away from? Yeah, I think the, the biggest takeaway from at least what's happened uh, with the Silicon Valley Bank thing is that um, we definitely can trust the credit rating agencies, but there, there needs to also be more work done on top of just that. Um, and it's kind of like, you know, the looking at stock analyst ratings and price targets, right? And, you know, I've heard when everyone's on the buy, has a buy rating and 30% upside, that's usually the time to get out, right? When people are the most bullish. So mm -hmm. uh, the same can be said in the bond portfolio. And 
Um, I think what, what happened in a matter of 24 hours at Silicon Valley Bank, just for our portfolio specifically, you know, we're, we're not adding to any regional bank exposures. We, we have one bank that has a maturity coming up June 13th, 2023. Um, so we're closely monitoring that. And uh, you know, our plan is to hold it to maturity, just like our investment policy statement uh, is. Sure. But also, if, you know, if we see potential for rating decreases and in, in cuts below investment grade, we have to take action and sell the bonds. Uh, and uh, that's a, a tough decision uh, to make, and we, we hopefully never have to. Yeah. One hand, but. Well, it factors out so many things, like the emotional and the question. It's just, it's great to have the directive and the policy to Correct. do those things Absolutely. and convince you. Yeah, for sure. So with that being the case, thank you, Dick. Um, we've been talking with Dick Schiller, uh, chartered financial analyst with Pavlik Investment Advisors, also friend to Ellen Becker as Dick and Terry, uh, his colleague, have been managing portfolios with us for several years. And uh, a couple of closing thoughts here I'd like to share um, with, with everyone. Uh, Money Sense airs on Saturdays from 2 to 3 p.m. and Sundays from 12 to 1. If you like today's show and want to know more, please visit ellenbecker.com or call us at our our main number at 262-691-3200. And if anyone has any questions uh, or follow-up from today's show, um, feel free to reach out to us. And as always, we hope that we've made a difference in your personal and financial well-being. Remember, before we plan, we advise. Before we invest, we always certainly listen. <laughs>